We come this morning to Ephesians chapter 6 and verse 4. Ephesians chapter 6 and verse 4. And ye fathers, provoke not your children to wrath, but bring them up in the nurture and admonition of the Lord. We're seeing how Christianity is to affect our domestic relationships within the home. We've considered the duties of wives and husbands, and then last time we were looking at children's duty to obey their parents, that all children at all times are to honor their parents in all things that are lawful and not sinful. And so then Paul turns from children to parents in the same way as he turned from wives to husbands. And in verse 4, he charges parents with the duty to bring up their children in all things in the Lord. And so to you who are parents this morning, you should go away from this service with a clear sense of the solemn and overwhelming responsibility that you have to bring your children up in godly nurture. And to those of you who are children and not yet parents, you need to go away not thinking, well, these are all the things that my parents must do to me, but you're to think ahead as to what kind of parent you will be when the Lord in his mercy will grant you your own household. Parents are to nurture their children. We'll consider here, first of all, that parents are addressed. Parents are addressed. We noted last time that God is the one who has sovereignly established this relationship of parent to child. And the children are under authority to obey their parents. But here we are reminded that parents are in authority. But with authority always comes responsibility. So you have many people who want authority. They want to be in power, but they don't like to embrace the responsibility that comes with that. But here in verse 4, Paul says, And ye fathers, provoke not your children to wrath. Now the word fathers here can be considered in a general way to include mothers as well. And so if you think about the fifth commandment, honor thy father and thy mother, we know that that extends to all relations of superiority and inferiority. So in a general sense, when the word of God says fathers here, we are not to exclude mothers, but we are to recognize that there is a responsibility required of both parents. But yet at the same time, in that Paul does say fathers, we have to also recognize that fathers are being addressed in particular. And that makes sense, doesn't it? Because husbands are the head of their wives, fathers are the heads of their home. And while parenting is a joint enterprise, ultimately what is commanded here is the responsibility of fathers. 
So fathers, you are to ensure that what is commanded here is done in your home. You could think of Abraham, Genesis chapter 18, for I know him. He will command his household after him and they will keep the way of the Lord to do judgment. And when the Lord commands you, you are to work with your wife to this great end. Now, there is much that you will obviously delegate to your wife, the way things are set up in our homes. Men are often busy with work outside the home, and the wife will be in the home with children. And so obviously, you're delegating a huge chunk of that to your wives, but never at the cost of your abdication. Never. You are to take personal responsibility. You are to have direct involvement in the upbringing of your children. Indeed, we might say that you have no more important duty in life than the nurture and the welfare of your children. And would to God this morning, that was branded upon our hearts and our consciences as Christian fathers. So parents are addressed. But the second thing here is that parents are warned. Parents are warned. And ye fathers, provoke not your children to wrath. So the first thing Paul commands is actually something that we are not to do. You are not to provoke your children to wrath. You're not to excite or stimulate them to sin in this relationship. You are not to exasperate your children. You are not to enrage your children. If you were to look at Colossians chapter 3, verse 21, Paul says something more. He says that we're not to provoke our children to wrath, lest they be discouraged. And the word discouraged there means that they might be disheartened or they might become spiritless. There's a warning. There's a danger that authority can quickly turn into authoritarianism. And that is not what the Lord has given to us as parents. Well, both parents, father and mother, need to be very careful here. Ladies, you can be an exasperating mother. But again, when Paul addresses fathers, it may be that in certain instances, fathers are more prone to provoke their children to wrath, exasperate and dishearten them. And so with God's help, I want to consider a number of ways that you may do this. In many ways, this requires a sermon of its own, so we'll be moving quite quickly through these things. But there are five ways, among many more, that you could exasperate your children. The first is by not providing for them. By not providing for them. By not giving to the children that God has given you things that are necessary for their lives. For where else are your children going to receive these things? You could consider a very obvious and extreme example of the drunkard. And everything he earns, he spends on his addiction to alcohol with the result that the household is not provided for. His children are going to be provoked and exasperated by his actions. 
more generally to us here today, it would involve not providing food for them so that they go hungry, not providing education for them so that they become limited with regard to their abilities and opportunities in life. Interestingly, the Puritans who get such bad press when it comes to these areas all seem uh, to identify another area that you can provoke your children by not providing suitable recreation for them. Kind of locking them up only to work, only to study, only to be devoted to chores and not recognize the place that this recreation has in the development of their children. So not providing for them. A second way is by vexatious commanding of your children. You've authority, as we mentioned, and they are to obey you in all things, but your commands are to be lawful and reasonable. Think of the implications of the gospel as Paul presses it upon us in Romans chapter 12, that you are to present your bodies a living sacrifice unto God, which is your what? Your reasonable service. It's logical that we would present our bodies living sacrifices unto God. Well, well, that principle will also pertain to our human relationships. That lawful commanding is not unreasonable. Your children are not your little slaves. And parents can very quickly become pharaohs, making their children under them serve with rigor. Lazy parents who get their children to do the work that they ought to be doing, particularly a danger in large Christian families, with the result that you exasperate your children. You provoke them to wrath. Thirdly, unreasonable expectations of your children. And here you have to wisely and biblically measure your expectations. You look at the age of your child and you have reasonable expectations. You study the gifts and abilities of your children, the character of your children, and you have reasonable expectations. Now, I will say this, you ought to have expectations. And one of the big problems in modern culture and in the church is that we don't have big enough expectations. And that can destroy your children. And so you expect nothing, you indulge everything, you don't expect the obedience that is reasonable and ought to be required. And then you excuse all the chaos that follows as a result of your abdication. So your expectations can be too low but they can also be exasperatingly too high. So don't expect too much of your younger children. They really are young children. And you need to be patient with them. And you can't uh, fall into the trap of being overbearing and const constantly negative with them all the time because it will crush them. And you need to have realistic expectations of each of your children as those children grow and they, they won't all be the same. 
So you can't take a one size fits all. Child number one was like this. Therefore, child number two, child number three will be like this. And I expect the same thing of all of those children. They're not clones. And neither ought you to expect of your children what you have the ability to do. Some of your children might be more able than you. Some of your children will be less able than you. And that's okay. But if you weigh in thinking that all of your children are going to have the same abilities and your abilities, and when they don't have that, you become impatient, unreasonable, what are you going to do? You're going to destroy the child. You're going to make them spiritless, heartless. They'll be discouraged. Then you can provoke them to wrath by too severe correction off them. You are to correct them, and we'll come to that later, but you have to do it proportionately. You know, there are some parents, and they don't seem to be able to have a gradation of punishment to, to meet the offense. And we looked recently at this in, in the law of God, the eye for the eye, the tooth for the tooth. What's behind it? The punishment is to fit the crime. So you don't take a life for a hand. The same thing here in the home. If everything is the big issue and everything gets the same response, then you're going to create frustration via your abusive approach to correction. Don't provoke your children to wrath by harsh words spoken in uncontrolled passion. And we've all done that. We need to repent of that. Don't provoke your children to wrath by violent physical chastisement, which terrorizes them rather than corrects them and causes them to despise you. It's a complete contradiction of what you seek. It will have the opposite effect. It won't win your child's heart. It will alienate your child's heart. It won't draw them to yourself and to God. It will drive them away from you. One Puritan writes, children are pieces, little pieces of yourselves to be governed with tenderness, patience, and love. So that your severity, and you are to have a severe side as a parent, is to be as God's severity, which is clothed in goodness, so that you know how to be firm, and yet you know how to be gracious. Fifth way that you can provoke your children to wrath is by overprotection of them. By overprotection of them. Note that I did not say protection of them. Of course, you are to protect your children. But there is an unhealthy, controlling overprotection that is destructive. And it's very relevant today. Those of you who are older than me see it, I see it. 
it seems that each generation goes further in this than the previous one. So that the slightest little thing, the slightest little knock that a child gets becomes a crisis. The parent flies into panic, which then instructs the child to become hysterical. And sometimes it, it seems that parents can't just say to children anymore, it's okay. You're fine. Get up. Get on with it. The result of that kind of approach will be that you raise children that cannot cope with ordinary things. They will become weak and their default response will be to make everything into a drama. And that's what's happening in society. We need to be careful. We're not going to be unloving or insensitive. But we can destroy the spirit of a child in this way. And then when the child gets older, we can feel to help them into adulthood. Parents micromanage everything. They want to be responsible, but they end up making all of this, the decisions for children who are moving into adulthood. They become helicoptering parents, projecting all of their fears and all of their insecurities on their children rather than, than teaching and helping their children to become responsible. That's not biblically principled parenting. That's paranoid parenting. So as a parent, you have to hold tightly onto everything so much. Why? Because you don't trust God and you don't build trust in your children. And consequently, you exasperate your children, you stunt their development, and you're not governing so as to prepare them for life. Fathers, parents, Provoke not your children to wrath, because for all of this we will be held accountable by the Lord. So parents are addressed and parents are warned. But then thirdly, parents are commanded. And ye fathers, provoke not your children to wrath, but bring them up in the nurture and admonition of the Lord. So we move from the negative, what we're not to do, to the positive, what we have to do. And the first thing here is Paul tells us that we are to bring up our children. The Greek word means to fatten or to ripen. The idea of bringing from an immature to, to a mature state. And it really describes the whole training of your children from infancy to adulthood. But something else that's very significant about this word is that it is a word of great tenderness. So if you look back to chapter 5, verse 29, For no man ever yet hated his own flesh, but nourisheth and cherisheth it. The word nourish there is the same word that we have here for bring them up in chapter 6 and verse 4. And when Calvin is explaining this word, he says it means to fondly cherish your children. And that's very helpful because it does what we need to see. It roots the whole of our training 
in the attitude and atmosphere of love. Now, we addressed this last time with children, that the fifth commandment is the first commandment of the second table of the law, and it teaches us that we're to love our neighbor as ourselves. And the child's closest neighbor until the child gets married is the parent. But here's the parent. And though your closest neighbor is your husband or your wife, yet these children that God has given to you are your flesh. The next nearest relationship to you in life. Ought it not to be natural, instinctive? That we are to nourish tenderly and love our children. We even look to the beasts of the field and we see their instinct to nurture and care for their young. And then we look to our culture and what do we discover? That in an age where everybody freely talks about love, there is wicked hatred of children. Paul says, bring them up in the nurture and admonition of the Lord. What do we have? We have a nation arguing for the moral virtue of abortion, which refuses to bring children up, but would snuff their very life out in the womb, not even permitting them to see the, life of, the light of day, not willing to carry them for nine months in the year of, of a year, let alone bring them up for the whole of their childhood. Brethren, that is satanic barbarism and totally contrary to the principle behind this word, bring them up. In your home's love is a necessity because if you are to perform your duty, it's going to involve great labor, much financial cost. It's going to take a lot of time, many times you're going to be discouraged and overwhelmed. And if you do not have biblical love, you will neglect your duty. But on the contrary, the more of that biblical love that you have for your children, the more you're going to labor in your responsibilities and in your duties. So you're to bring them up, fondly cherish, love and care for your children. But the second thing here is that you're to bring them up in the nurture and admonition of the Lord. And these two words together really describe the whole training and discipline of your children. The first word here, nurture, is the Greek word paideia. And it means education or training, and includes and includes a chastisement of your children. And so, were you to turn to Hebrews chapter twelve, verse seven, despise not the chastening of the Lord. It's this word: despise not the discipline or the chastening of the Lord. And so, part of this is going to be parental correction, verbal and physical. And again, we'll come to that later. But you need to see this chastisement of your child as part of the whole process of instruction. And so don't compartmentalize things. 
Because if you do, you'll, you'll fall into errors of practice. This whole nurture governs your instruction and your discipline. So that means when you come to correct your children verbally and physically, it's not mere reproof. It's not mere correction. It's certainly not punishment disassociated from the rest of the nurture of your children. It's part of the whole. Then we're to admonish them. We're to bring them up in the nurture and admonition of the Lord. And this word describes putting something into the mind. You're to be teaching your children. You'll positively instruct them. Very, very often you, you will repetitively instruct them. If you're new to this whole art of parenting, sit down with someone who's been in the way for a lot longer and you'll say things like, but I don't understand. I say this and doesn't matter how many times I say it, it doesn't seem to sink in. And the older parents just going to smile at you and say, yeah, guess what? You have to keep going positively and repetitively teaching your children, driving the nail of truth over and over again that it might be fastened into the heart of the child. And so this is going to be instructive to guide. It's a little bit like the word we find in Deuteronomy 6 verse 7, thou shalt teach them diligently unto thy children. Not just once or twice. It's going to take effort and persistence. Or Proverbs 22 verse 7, train up a child in the way that he shall go. Persistently train them, guide them, teach them. It's going to be instructive to guide. And then it's going to be corrective to bring them back into the way when they go out of it. And so later we'll look at some of the reproving commandments that we find in the book of Proverbs. So you're to bring them up, you're to bring them up in the nurture and admonition. But the third part here is that it is to be the nurture and admonition of the Lord. And so this final statement really governs the whole of this commandment. That your instruction and correction must be that which the Lord requires that which the Lord approves of, that in which ultimately Jesus Christ is enthroned at the center, he governs the whole, and his glory is the ultimate end of everything that you do in the godly care of your children. If we were to paraphrase it, what Paul is saying here is fathers give your children a Christian education and nurture in everything. It's the nurture and admonition of the Lord. So parents are addressed, parents are warned, and parents are commanded. Well, for the rest of our time, we want to make application of this to our households. And so I want to consider with you parents' obedience. 
we'll look at four areas and each area will have subcategories of application connected to them. But the first is temporal provision. It is your duty as parents to make temporal provision. You are to provide everything that your children need in life. Now, I don't say everything that they think they need or everything that they desire or everything that they want. They actually need you to tell them, no, you're not getting that. That's a need. But everything that they need, you are to provide. Through all of the different stages that they will pass through, beginning in the womb, and you ladies understand this, you find out that you have conceived a child in your womb and everything changes in your thinking. You're now very conscious that you need to protect this life that God has given to you. And so you look after yourself so that you might look after your child. And then you give birth to that child. And you grant to the child tender protection. You go through the, pre the process of continual and exhausting feeding and nursing of that child. The Lord requires it. And then the child grows, and from there as parents, you are to provide sufficient food and work diligently so as to, to, to be able to do so. You're to provide suitable clothing and housing and health care and hygiene. You're to protect them from danger. As your child grows from infancy to adulthood, you're to see to it that your children are educated. And this is very important. That your children are given a biblical work ethic. That's part of their education, perhaps the most important part of their education. And so you're not going to indulge your child's ignorance or idleness. You have a goal as a parent that I need to guide my children through this education process so that they might have uh, sufficient skills that they can then move into a suitable calling. And that's not all of their choice. You are to guide and direct them in that, assessing their gifts and development, talking to them. You have these strengths. You have these weaknesses. You want to think about going this direction. Why? Not because you just want to control your children, because you're thinking, I need to prepare this child so that he or she is able to do what the Lord requires of them when they move into Christian adulthood. I want to warn many of us here today who are doing this all at home. It, sometimes when I speak, you, you might think I'm negative against homeschooling. Step back from that. It, it's all that I ever did with my own children. But two decades of that does give you a lot of personal insight and when you've walked with others doing it for two decades it also gives you an appreciation of the strengths and weaknesses do not feel your children here do not feel your children here 
there are too many homeschooled children who are largely abandoned. And as a result of that, they're not educated well enough. And many of them don't have a sufficient appreciation of a work ethic that is required for life. There are too many theoretical homeschoolers. And as a result of that, they fail to prepare their children in the way that the Lord requires. Don't be that parent. Now, some people run at it with completely skewed perspectives. They look at another family and that family's academic and the children are just running through all of this work and they're all like geniuses. And you, you sit down in your family as we, we've all done and you thought, yeah, that's the way I'm going to approach homeschooling only to meet your children without those gifts. Well, well what do you do? Like I said earlier, you assess their gifts. You get them to work hard with their gifts. You give them that work ethic. You give them a proper education in terms of perspective in life. And then when the time comes, you send them out and you say, get on with it. It's vital. Connected to this provision is that you aim to guide and provide a suitable spouse for them in the Lord's providence. So last time we spoke to you children and said you don't get married without the consent of your parent. But if that's true, then it's also true that your guidance as a parent is vit a vital part of your godly care of your children. Again, we noted last time that the father is in a very particular sense an image of God within the home because God is the father of his people. And when God brings a wife for Adam, he brings one who is meat for him. Well, you ought to follow the, the pattern of the Lord. You ought to be thinking about one who is meat for your son or for your daughter. But in this provision, you guide. They don't marry without your consent, but you do not force them to marry without their agreement. Because the two people who enter into marriage must desire that marriage for themselves. They must not be unlawfully compelled into it. And you see this principle in scripture. Abraham wants a wife for his son Isaac, and he takes care of that matter. He, he, he makes provision for Isaac, and the servant goes off, and he's in the household. And he states the case before her fathers and her brothers, but they turn unto her, don't they? And they say, well, thou go with this man. And she says, I will go. But she could have said, no, no, I will not go. And then it would have been an utter abuse of authority for the father to compel that marriage. She make provision in an education calling marriage then another area that the Bible presses upon us is that you are to live to be able to leave to your children an inheritance. You're to make provision for them in this way. There's so many principles involved in this, brethren, that we can't go into them this morning, but fundamentally your wealth is not your own. 
Your wealth is not your own. God is the one who has given you that wealth. And your wealth is not just for yourself, but it is given to you by God to serve with. And one aspect of this service is leaving an inheritance to your children. Listen to Proverbs 13, verse 22. A good man leaveth an inheritance to his children's children, and the wealth of the sinner is laid up for the just. Now we need to have our minds renewed in this area that we earn money, we grow old, we provide for retirement, but we don't think, well, all of my money is my own and I've saved it all up so as to squander it all in my enjoyment. Because in doing so, we would actually be depriving our children of what God commands to them as a biblical right. Now, it's not always possible, and some people have a lot, and some people have a little, but the principle is right. This doesn't mean that an inheritance is to be left to all children automatically. You children may disinherit yourselves. You may disinherit yourselves. You do that by rebellion against the Lord and breaking his covenant. And now your parent is in a position where all the wealth that God has given me is given to me by God, and I'm to serve God with it, and I'm to use it for his glory and his kingdom. And the consequence of apostatizing from the Lord and violating his covenant comes into this area of disinheritance. And you need to have this conversation perhaps with your children. That if you violate the covenant of the Lord, I will love you enough to disinherit you or to greatly reduce your inheritance. Why do I say that's love? I say it's love because it's biblical, but furthermore, it's a warning of an even greater inheritance that they're going to receive from the Lord. So they're sitting thinking, well, I might not get an inheritance of my parents' estate. Few thousand dollars. Guess what? God is going to disinherit you forever and cast you into everlasting poverty in the blackness and darkness, blackness of darkness forever. So these principles govern things. You're to make temporal provision. Secondly, you're to give spiritual instruction. All of your provision and all of your nurture is the nurture of the Lord. And so we have to approach this with a spiritual eye. First of all, here you will present your children in baptism because you recognize God has given you your children and he has included them in his covenant. They have his promise, we have his promise and his command that God will be our God and the God of our children after us, but we are to bring them up in the nurture and admonition of the Lord. And so we present them to the Lord who gave them to us in baptism. You can think of the questions that I put to those who are presenting their children 
Do you promise to exercise your authority in love to raise your child in the whole nurture, admonition, and discipline of the Lord? Then you will provide for your children a Christian education. We've looked at the temporal aspect. You're to educate them so that they're able to be functional adults in life, able to provide for themselves. But you look at the world and indeed many in the church, and that's all they think about when it comes to the education of their children. I want them to get good grades. I want them to go to a good school. Maybe I'll get them involved in sports and they can achieve at sports or get one of these scholarships to, to a college. And it's all earthbound. But remember, the entirety of this is the nurture and admonition of the Lord. Therefore, that is the main thing. And the only education you are permitted, indeed commanded to give to your children is a Christian education in all things. And you may choose to do that yourself at home, or you may choose to delegate it to another in school. But it is utterly incompatible with this command to put your children willingly into a modern state school who will do the very opposite of what you were commanded to do here. That will poison the minds and murder the souls of your covenant children. So anyone that you delegate the education of your children to must actually assist you in the fulfillment of Ephesians 6 verse 4. We don't compartmentalize spiritual instruction from the, the education of our children. It's a holistic view here. You will take your children to church. That's a given. But you will instruct your children in the home. home. The church is a role to teach its children and to assist you, but the primary duty rests upon you. Didn't we see it this morning in our call to worship? Deuteronomy chapter 6. That you will teach these commandments diligently to your children and you will talk about them when you rise up and when you sit down and you go by the way and you'll bind them as frontlets between your eyes and you'll tie them uh, upon your hands and you'll have them uh, upon the doorposts of your house. Everything is to be governed by the word of God. Formal times of instruction and worship in your home. Daily family worship, it's a given. You will teach your children the scriptures. You will use helps that the Lord in providence has given to us in the catechisms of the church. You will formally instruct them, then you branch out into the whole of life. When you sit down, when you rise up, when you walk, always in everything. Christ is to be at the heart and at the center. Now again, I say this is pressed upon fathers, and though mothers will have more contact with children for many years, you men, us men, are to take the lead and be active in this. And you are busy. That's, that ought to be a given. 
But if you are too busy for this, you are sinfully too busy and you need to fix it. Then backing up your instruction, you will live out a godly example before your children. Because you teach your children as much by your example as by your words. So you teach them the truth. You set them a pattern of godliness to confirm your teaching. Knowing that your children are very perceptive, more perceptive than you think, and they will quickly be able to recognize the disjunct between what you say and how you live. So going back to Deuteronomy chapter 6, you will teach them diligently unto your children. But the command doesn't begin there, does it? Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God is one Lord, and thou shalt love the Lord thy God with all thy heart. And these things that I command thee this day shall be in thy heart. Now go and teach them unto your children. It begins with your love for God, your loving reception of the truth. And by implication, your loving and consistent obedience and believing of the truth so that you're teaching in words and teaching by your life, your children. And all of this instruction begins from their earliest days as soon as they're able to receive it. And it continues through childhood and into youth and you persist in it into adulthood. It changes, of course, but it doesn't stop. Remember last time we looked at this and we saw that the honor of children to parents continues? Well, it ought to be obvious that the instruction of parents to children also continues. So if you're a parent of an older child, you should be still looking for opportunities and indeed taking them that you might be a means of instruction and help to your children. Maybe we could put it like this. Parents never let go of the reins of instruction. And when the children are small, the reins are held very tightly. As the child grows older, you're slackening the reins. When the child is an adult, it may feel as though you've let go of the reins, but you've just loosened them. But there are times as the parent of an adult child that you are going to have to tug those reins and say, no, you're going in a wrong direction. Or they're going to need your guidance. So you're steering them continually in life. Thirdly, faithful correction. God requires you to verbally correct your children. So you're to admonish them and to reprove them. This comes on the back of what you've instructed them in already. They're to know certain things. Now you haven't followed those things. And it ought to go before or accompany physical correction. I think sometimes we go to that text in Scripture that we are not to spare the rod and somehow we imagine that the rod 
alone has power to instruct our children. The rod alone only has power to hurt your child. It doesn't have power in and of itself to instruct your child. Proverbs chapter 17 and verse 10. A reproof entereth more into a wise man than a hundred stripes into a fool. The fool is beaten repeatedly and he's still a fool. But the wise man's hearing. He's hearing reproof. Therefore Solomon puts a premium upon this and exhorts his children to receive it. Chapter 6, verse 20, My son, keep thy father's commandment, and forsake not the law of thy mother. Then three verses later, For the commandment is a lamp, the law is a light. Listen, and reproofs of instruction are the way of life. So children, when you're being reproved, embrace it as life. Parents, when you are reproving your children, consider it as a tree of life a river of life to your children. Chapter 15, 32. He that refuseth instruction despiseth his own soul, but he that heareth reproof getteth understanding. Or chapter 29 and verse 15 and 17. The rod and reproof give wisdom, but a child left to himself bringeth his mother to shame. Correct thy son, and he shall give thee rest. Yea, he shall give delight unto thy soul. Too many parents are loath to speak a hard word to their children, and it only gets harder as the children get older. But please understand today, this is not love to your children. It is to support your children persisting in their own destructive folly. You need to speak to them. Words of life. So it will be verbal, but then it will also be physical something that is rapidly becoming criminal in Western nations and thought to be unloving and abusive to children. Well, physical correction is certainly not pleasant for the child. It's not supposed to be, but it's good for the child. Proverbs 22.15, Foolishness is bound in the heart of a child, but the rod of correction shall drive it far from him. Chapter 13, verse 24, He that spareth his rod hateth his son, but he that loveth him chasteneth him betimes. Chapter 23, 13 and 14, Withhold not correction from the child, for if thou beatest him with the rod, he shall not die. Thou shalt beat him with the rod, and shalt deliver his soul from hell. So what does God say? He says the rod delivers from foolishness. The rod is an expression of love. The rod will not harm the child, but do him good. It will deliver him from an evil course. And the world says, this is abusive. And the Bible says the tender mercies of the wicked are cruel. And you see it here. 
Don't use the rod couched in all of this loving language, but hear it for what it is. Hate your children. Destroy your children. Feel to deliver your children. This is coming into the church. The church is embracing the ideas of the world. And so we have Christian parents today, sadly, governed by false ideologies from the world and the tyranny of their children's tears. So I could never, I could never see my little child cry. And, and you think it's love. It's not. It's not love. You don't violently abuse your children, but you can abuse your children by not physically correcting them. And we need to believe God in this. You need to start early. You need to do it consistently. Because if you spare the rod, you destroy the child and you will make a rod for your own back as a parent. Furthermore, if you do this and in the end they turn aside from you, you will deliver yourself from the guilt of failure in this area. The Lord will not charge you the way he charged Eli, who refused to correct his children. Love them enough to believe God and do what he says. Finally, continual intercession. God has given you these children and commanded you to raise them in his nurture, and he gives you promises. He makes you the principal means of seeing your children converted and rooted in Christ. You are to love and you are to serve these children unto Christ. The Puritan Good says this, the first and best stream which flows from a fountain of love is faithful and fervent prayer for your children. It ought to be obvious. Because as parents, you need to pray for help for all of these parental duties. We ought to go away from this sermon this morning acknowledging our sin, our failures, our abdications, and knowing that God is merciful, but we need to leave understanding that we are not sufficient for this. That you cannot do this in your own strength. That you don't have the skill, you don't have the wisdom, you don't have the patience, you don't have the self-control, but God invites you to ask. And he promises you help. She go way back to where this section began. And before he says, wives submit your husbands, husbands love your wives, what does he say? He says, be filled with the Spirit. That's what we need. We need Spirit-filled parents if we are ever going to be biblical parents. And will not this drive us to God to beg him that he would give us everything that we need. We go to Solomon, don't we? And we say, oh, look at the wisdom of Solomon. And we learn from the Proverbs of Solomon. 
but they're really the Proverbs of the Holy Spirit. And a greater than Solomon has come. And we need to go to him for all the wisdom that we require to be parents. So you need to pray for help in your parental duty, but you need to pray that God would make all of your nurture of your children effectual for them, their salvation. All you can do is train them and teach them and show them the way and correct them. But you've no power to give them life. None. And you watch on. And you can't make a change. Can't do it. There are too many Christian parents who are legalistically faithful in outward obedience to these duties. And so, you know, I need to catechize my children. I get them to learn the catechism. Wonderful. They've learned the catechism. Get them to, get them to memorize scripture. Great little Johnny's learned scripture. Bring them to church. Want to give them a Christian education. And you can diligently do those things outwardly and yet somehow be unfaithful and neglectful in the place of prayer. How can that be? And yet it is far too often. I want to challenge your hearts as we close this morning. If you realize what is at stake and your own powerlessness to effect the things that you say you want. That if we would stop fooling ourselves, that really we just want our children to look good outwardly and be well behaved and say the right things and do the right things, and we're content, we think all is well. If you understand that what you seek is that your children would be Christians, and that that is a miraculous thing. Surely, brethren, we are going to see that our chief work, indeed our most desperate work in the nurture of our children, is that we engage in prayer. From the moment that we know that they are conceived, conceived in sin, throughout the whole of their lives while you have breath you're going to pray Lord save my children keep my children bless all of this nurture that I'm trying to give to my children because I cannot do what I desire to be done. If you love your children, there is nothing that you will do more for them than nurture them in the ways that we've described today. And if you love your children, in all of that nurturing, 
There is nothing that you ought to prioritize more than prayer. Ye fathers, provoke not your children to wrath, but bring them up in the nurture and the admonition of the Lord. Let's stand for prayer. Our Father in heaven, we have heard your holy word. We confess the sins of our parenting, our exasperating of our children, our failure to nurture them the way we should, our failure to provide for them the things that we should our failure to love them in instruction and discipline, our prayerlessness, and our mechanical and legalistic approach to the nurture of our children. God, forgive us, save us from ourselves, and help us in the power of the Holy Spirit to fulfill your commandments and save our children whom we have conceived in sin. Save them from their sins. Sanctify them in Christ by the word and through the Holy Spirit. And prepare them for Christian adulthood that they in turn might likewise nurture their children in the Lord according to your covenant. We thank you this morning that we have godly examples of it that we can see three generations of families sitting here, parents to children to grandchildren. And Lord, we pray that this would be multiplied. We pray that you would extend your righteousness unto our children's children. You've given us these children, O oh God, they're yours. We give them back to you. Help us to care for them under Christ. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.